Welcome to the Lady Boss Podcast. I'm Laura Karun. And I'm Danielle Mo, and we're the founders of Lady Boss Midwest. We created Lady Boss Midwest to connect and empower women in our community and beyond. In this podcast, we'll be talking to lady bosses, empowered women, confident in their abilities and instinct, boldly leading with heart and integrity. In today's episode, I'll be chatting with Dana DelVal, president and CEO of the Arts Partnership, to talk about her journey to becoming unapologetically herself and why the arts are crucial to a thriving community and economy. As the president and CEO of the Arts Partnership, Dana is a force to be reckoned with when it comes to arts advocacy. Dana is known for passionately and fiercely educating community and business leaders about the reciprocal benefits of investing in the arts for the economic, community-based placemaking, cultural, and quality of life aspects. An instinctive leader with a voracious curiosity for learning, DelVal has grown the organization by more than 200% during her tenure. Beyond the successes she's had at the Arts Partnership, Dana is most proud of bringing various voices from across many sectors to the table to ask big questions and solve real problems. She is a consistent and vocal champion for issues and people who often go unnoticed and underappreciated, which is one of my favorite things about Dana. Dana was a speaker at the 2019 Lady Boss Summit, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have her on the podcast today. So welcome, Dana. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So basically anyone who knows you, Dana, associates you with fierce arts advocacy, which is, I know, how I was first introduced to you. I heard you speak at an event and I was like, holy crap, I've never heard anyone speak so passionately and with so much data about the arts. (laughs) I was totally impressed and completely intimidated. Wow. <laughs> okay. True. Well, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm very tall. Well, I'm not very tall. I'm tall. And <laughs> I think that uh, when you're tall and you have red hair and you are um, nothing like what people think a North Dakota native should be, you have nothing to lose. So you may as well just kind of lay it all out on the table at every chance you get. Well, I love that. And surprisingly, maybe to many people, you didn't set out to be the champion of arts that you are today. So Dana, let's go back all the way to what did you want to be when you were growing up? Oh, I wanted to be a movie star. Absolutely. Wanted to be an actor. Um, I mean, I am an actor. So it's a funny thing to talk about um, because in in some funny ways, I absolutely have lived my dream from Fargo, North Dakota, and in most other ways, of course, I absolutely have not. But um, my first degree is in theater. I fully expected to go be a movie star. And I mean that in the sense of making movies that had heft and significance and um, powerful women and really fascinating story arcs and things that actually kind of hardly exist in Hollywood most of the time, not in the sense of, oh, I want to be an Instagram influencer who happens to make movies. I mean, I'm old enough that the phrase Instagram influencer was not a phrase when I was young and thinking about what I wanted to be. Same. I am with you. (laughs) I think if anyone's older than about seven, they're um, older than that. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, Dana, can you share a little bit about your journey from wanting to be an actor and then landing back in Fargo, North Dakota? I know that's a that's a loaded question, but I want to hear your story. Well, um, so I actually haven't been away from Fargo very much of my life. Um, I uh, had a child not even nine full months after finishing college because he was born he was born early. So um, I got this theater degree. I went off to do Summerstock Theater in Southern Utah because, it, well, one, I got cast there, and two, it was um, a good distance from Las Vegas, which meant we could go to Las Vegas and fly to Los Angeles throughout the entire summer for long weekends and those kinds of things. And so it felt like the right place to go and um, start this transition from Fargo to LA. And I did go to LA a number of times that summer. Um, but I found out I was pregnant very, very quickly after getting to Utah. And so, um, you know, I had a number of decisions to make the first of which was, uh, whether or not I was going to have an abortion, which I certainly considered. Um, and obviously ultimately, did not do that. Uh, but then I started to look really seriously into adoption. I met with a couple of families who were hoping to adopt. I had a social worker in Southern Utah who I was working with. Um, and that was as an avenue that I really seriously pursued for a while and uh, just decided I would stay in Utah, have this baby, give this baby up, and then go on with my life. And life stepped in and I ended up moving back to the southwestern corner of North Dakota about six months into my pregnancy to live with my grandma for a while who had fallen and couldn't be on her own anymore. And um, then she fell again and the doctor said, you know, you're an actor who's pregnant. You don't have any nursing background. You cannot continue to care for this woman. That phase is done. Go home. So I drove home um, and I ended up having uh, my son four and a half weeks early, um, very unexpectedly. I had nothing in place for him. In fact, the day that he was born, I was supposed to have lunch with a woman who knew me more than I knew her, but she had given a baby up a couple of years earlier, and we were going to meet to just talk about what her experience had been like and how she had survived that. And um, at, at at the time, I, it was absolutely a God thing. And now I'm a little loosey-goosier in terms of thinking about organized religion versus just sort of spiritual entities. But um, at the time, God absolutely stepped in and uh, made the decision for me because Quinn came four and a half weeks early, like I said, very unexpectedly. And um, an angel actually came to the end of my bed. So that was the answer that I needed to know that this was the direction I was going to go and that certainly didn't uh, shut the door to my heart's desire to be a movie star, but it shut the door to the practical opportunity to go be a movie star. So that was that. I think it's really something that we don't talk about enough or much at all is the idea of, I mean, women's lives are changed so much by having a kid. And I think mm. it's very different than the dads mm -hmm. or men in general, um, often, not all dads, but um, it just it shifts who you are and what you think that you want to do. So 
what was your plan then? Or what, what were you thinking that, where were you going to go? Hmm. How are you going to move forward after you suddenly have a baby that you're keeping and you're going to raise for the next however Rest long they life. live? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Forever. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I absolutely did not have a plan. I can tell you that, um, what drove me so so because Quinn was early, I didn't get that first moment um, that you see in movies. I don't. I've never been in a delivery room except in this instance. So maybe nobody gets these moments, but it kind of seems like women do that moment where they lay the baby on you and you're looking at this kind of gloppy baby and you have this super emotional Hollywood moment. I didn't get that. Quinn needed to go have oxygen, so. Um, I had about a half hour before I actually even got to see him. My mom and my best friend were with me. They both had seen him before he was whisked off. And they, I mean, I was just, I think maybe everybody is dazed in this moment, but I was particularly dazed. And um, they brought back this, by Del Val standards, minuscule baby because he was early. So he was 6'9", which is massive for a premature baby, but uh, small for us. Uh, they brought back this um, tiny, tiny human who looked like a 90-year-old because in the last month of your pregnancy, that's when babies really kind of get that chubbiness to them. He had no chubbiness. So he looked like a Benjamin Button kind of image. <laughs> and he had a ton of hair, which they had um, cleaned up and kind of brushed across almost like a little comb over. And they handed me this tiny little person and I was holding him and I remember so clearly first being grateful that he was healthy and that he was fine as early as he was. And then I remember thinking, all right, I have been 23 for 15 days. I can give you 18 years. That seems like a life sentence in this moment, but I know it will fly by. I will give you, little person, 18 years. I will be 41 when you leave home and then I can go be a movie star. And I just, that is what um, sustained me. And that's not to say that I did not fall in love with being a mother. I was not someone who dreamt of motherhood. I didn't um, imagine having children. I didn't really give it any thought. I liked children, but I, I'm not the woman who, like, I never played bride. I never played mom. I didn't do those kinds of things as a child. So um, I I fell in love with him very quickly, but, but it was a little bit of a process. But even though that happened, and I cannot tell you how grateful I am to have accidentally had a child, because it's unlikely I would have chosen to have any, and I do love being a mother. Um, that setting that aside, what drove me was just counting down the minutes until I could figure out how to get to LA and do what I thought I was born to do. Um, so you can imagine now I'm 47. I've been an empty nester for six years. Um, other things came up along the way. I made choices various times not to move to Los Angeles. And it has been kind of the surprise of my life that that hasn't ruined me. So tell me, how did you end up at the arts partnership when that was not, there's no movie stars working there? Right. <laughs> how, did, 
yep. that's not that wasn't in your plan. How did you end up with that opportunity and going for that? The short answer is I ended up with it because it said it might be a part-time job. The thing that drove me from 23 until probably realistically 45 was I cannot take a full-time job that will inhibit my ability to go be the movie star I'm supposed to be. So this is the only full-time job I've ever had in my entire life. And had I known it was going to be full-time, it's unlikely I would have applied for it because I just, I just believed all the way to the core of my most innermost self that eventually I would get to that pinnacle moment. So um, I did a lot of freelance writing and freelance acting, and I was an adjunct professor. And everywhere I went, I was very clear that I will, I will commit to this work until and unless there's an opportunity to go act, in which case, don't keep the lights on because I won't be here. Um, and when I interviewed for this job, I was very clear with them that I would fulfill the obligations of this job, certainly. But that if there were opportunities for me to either be working locally or be working in Minneapolis or beyond, I was going to do that. And I sold it to them in a way that I, I believed and also allowed me to do this, which was it's appropriate for the leader of the arts partnership to be a working actor, to be a working artist. And they didn't disagree. Um, and so I, I took this full-time job with the understanding that it would be flexible enough that if the opportunities arose, I could go off and do that. And it has absolutely been true. When I've had the opportunities to go and do commercial work, to go and do some film work, those kinds of things, I've always been able to do them. And it has served the arts sector to have its primary arts leader, a working artist. So I've heard you tell a story about your interview with the arts partnership. And I, and I want you to share that because I love it. Oh, it's, such a, it's like it's just a story that you, everyone who hears it thinks, are you insane? The short answer to that is yes, I am probably. <laughs> um, so I, um, I just, I haven't really been ever a traditional human being. And so I don't really understand how traditional things work like job interviews. I mean, I know how they work, but I don't really know how to play that role because I'm not much of a role player, despite the fact that my primary goal in life is to play roles. <laughs> um, so I'm at this interview. There are six people on the interview panel, six really excellent people. I'm dressed for the role. I mean, I have on a suit. I feel very smart. Um, I have applied for this job. My recommendations are in. The whole thing is in place. And one of the questions was um, something to the effect of how do you uh, deal with people who maybe don't like you? And, um, you know, a normal person would say things like, oh, I extend... Um, an olive branch, or I try to build bridges, or I look for a commonality, or those kinds of things. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But that's what I think a normal person would say. What I said, because I had nothing to lose. I 
I didn't understand really what this job was. So I came into it with just a ton of naive bravado and then no real concept of what things look like in the real world. So I said to them, um, you know, I'm like mayonnaise. You either like me or you don't. And if you don't, I don't really care. And they were understandably kind of taken aback. And I didn't really say anything. I, I mean, that was my answer because it is really how I feel. And I don't, I don't say that from the sense of um, get out of my way if you don't like me. I mean, I, I a little bit do feel that way. But um, I say it from the sense of I really do feel like I am like mayonnaise. I, I don't like mayonnaise. You I love mayonnaise. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I mean, one of the things is you don't really find people who say, Mayonnaise is fine. People have very strong feelings about mayonnaise. Um, and because I am a very particular type of person, people tend to have very strong feelings about me. And rather than bemoan that, I just choose to accept it. Uh, and I, I don't think, like, you can't make me like mayonnaise. There's really nothing mayonnaise can do to change my opinion of it. So, that's how I feel about me. If you don't get me, if I'm abrasive or aggressive or you're uncomfortable with me or you wish I were more demure or pick your adjective, I'm unable and quite frankly, unwilling to play the role you want me to play for your level of comfort, which doesn't mean I don't tone myself down all the time. But I do it on my terms, not somebody else's. So I came back for a second interview. I know, listening audience, you're shocked. <laughs> I came back for a second interview after that. And the same woman who had asked me the first question said, I really, we have to go back to your mayonnaise question because I'm just shocked. And I said to her, you know, I have been thinking about it. And I, um, I'm a little shocked that I said that as well. I said, actually, what I should have said was that I am really more like Mary Poppins. I'm practically perfect in every way. And I stopped talking there. <laughs> and they waited for me to, you know, say, oh, no, I'm kidding. And I just didn't. Um, and that was 10 years ago. And I've learned a lot about myself in 10 years. And I still feel both of those things. I'm not positive I would say them. On the other hand, I'm a big believer that you better know what you're getting. And what you're getting with me is a lot. You're getting a lot of really excellent and you're getting a lot of, huh, wow. And you better know that going into it so that nobody is surprised. One of the things that I admire most about you is how unapologetically you that you are. And that is something that I have really been loving about being in my 30s now is really figuring out who I am and what I believe and what I like and leaning really hard into that and to people that like me for those whatever things that I like. Um, so do you think that confidence is something that comes naturally or something that you learn to build? Oh, it's a great question, Laura. I, I think confidence can come from 
both directions. Um, my mom tells this story that, um, so I was born December 29th in a very small rural hospital in Southwestern North Dakota to parents who were 19 and 23 at the time. So basically children themselves. And I was massive going back to the DelVal baby. I was nine, three. So I was this bruiser of a baby and I had this kind of shock of crazy pinkish hair and these huge blue eyes. And I, uh, was just like like a four-month-old in this newborn <laughs> environment. And my mom is just this tiny, she's my height, but she's like half my size. It's just the, the fact that she produced this huge baby is just kind of ridiculous. So my parents went down to the viewer, the viewing window at the nursery, and there were two babies in the in bassinets. And one was a baby who'd been born December 27th and she was perfect and tiny and had rosebud lips and, you know, dark hair that was perfectly laid out on her head and a little pink bow. And she was swaddled and sleeping on her back, just like all picture perfect babies. And I was about four or five hours old at this time, four or five hours. And I was on my tummy and my head was up and I was looking around and my mom swears that she turned to my dad and said, oh, we could be in real trouble here. <laughs> um, so I think, I think I came out this way. In fact, my mom would tell you that she kind of tried to beat some of this out of me. And I mean, beat metaphorically, not physically. Um, she kind of tried to hammer some of this out of me because it's a lot. Um, but, you know, you can't be Mary Poppins unless you believe you're Mary Poppins. And um, if you love mayonnaise, man, you love it for the tang. You love it for the goop, for the whatever it is, you love it. And uh, that's just who I am. Does that mean that I never suffer with feelings of inadequacy? No, it does not mean that. I am equally insecure as secure. I am equally um, lacking in confidence as confident. I am equally sure that I am the dumbest person on the block as well as the smartest. So it's a complex thing. Um, so I, I think I just have it. Other people, I think, really can develop it. They can model it. They can practice it. They can um, have someone help mentor it in them. They, I mean, there's lots of ways, I think, to come to it. Um, mine has just been, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the fact that I am um, red-haired and left-handed, and here's a weird fact, hardly most people don't know about me. I was born with 12 toes, um, which is a highly, highly, highly genetic thing. It runs in my dad's family. And like, I would have been a burned as a witch within 10 seconds <laughs> if I'd been born 400 years ago. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta be prepared to defend yourself when you're like me, because throughout most of history, I wouldn't have stood much chance. And so I think it's just inherent to who I am. I love that. <laughs> Well, a lot of people love it from a distance. I think it's a lot to go <laughs> <blowing> up close. <laughs> we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. It's more important than ever to be supporting small businesses right now. 
Whether you order online, call for takeout, buy a gift card, sign up for a membership, praise them on social media, or tip like you never have before, these are all great ways that will create an impact during this pandemic and long after. For more details on how to support, head to ladybossmidwest.com blog. What is a lady boss? She's an empowered woman, confident in her abilities and instinct, boldly leading with heart and integrity. Does that sound like you or the person you want to become? Then the Lady Boss Summit is made for you. Our third annual Lady Boss Summit is set for Tuesday, August 4th. Your all-access virtual summit ticket will include a lineup of incredible speakers, panel discussions, virtual networking with Lady Bosses from across the Midwest, digital resources, and a fun-filled exclusive swag box sent right to your door. We can't wait to connect and learn with you from wherever you are. To find out more and reserve your ticket, go to ladybossmidwest.com. Welcome back to the Lady Boss Podcast. So, Data, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the arts. Mm-hmm. The arts have always been so near and dear to my heart, and I definitely don't think that they get the credit they deserve. So, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do through the Arts Partnership? Sure. Um, hey, thanks for loving the arts. Uh, that's, you know, that's the first sort of most important step is helping people get over their uh, misperception of the arts or their bad experience. You know, you think about the seventh grader who, who um, writes a poem and the English teacher who tells them they're not very good at it or the kid who auditions multiple times to be in plays and never gets casts and and those moments really can stick with you and can sour how you feel about the entire sector, which is a shame because I am here to proclaim loudly that the arts are absolutely what separate us from every other species on the planet. Um, lots of people have heard me say this, but we had art before we had agriculture in any way that human beings understand it. We were trying to make sense of our world through storytelling and through depiction of events um, on cave walls and through music and dance and rhythm. The first sound heard by a developing fetus is the rhythm of that little person's mother's heart. So it is inherent and core to who we are. So the arts partnerships job is really to amplify the arts, to support local art, to advocate the arts across every sector and to get the arts at every table we possibly can. Um, and I, that wasn't really always the mission of the arts, the organization of the arts partnership. The organization is 50 years old. Uh, I'm about to start my 10th year, July 1st. And when I started at the Arts Partnership, it was a primarily a communication and regranting organization. So we get money from the three cities of Fargo, Moorhead, and West Fargo, and we grant out a large percentage of that to the nonprofits that make arts in the community. And we had a little newspaper that came out six times a year. So that was the bulk of the work being done. Certainly there were other pieces too, but those were kind of the two 
known entities of the organization. And um, because I am a political being in kind of every sense of the word, I was really interested in the politics of how the arts are perceived and invited to the table. And so I brought that um, proclivity to this role. And I am also, um, I'm pretty tenacious and I'm pretty determined in my belief that the reason the arts aren't valued is because people haven't been invited to value them. So I, um, I invite the community to value the arts. And sometimes I do that through, um, hard activism. And sometimes I do it through, um, storytelling and measurements and metrics and graphs and data and, um, collective empathy and, you know, I, I, we, we employ every tactic we possibly can to help people hook in to the power of the arts, if not for themselves, then for the economic betterment of their community, for the community's ability to attract and retain uh, college students and young employees, to uh, reach out to all kinds of people who live on the margins of society, to engage people in overcoming post-traumatic stress disorder and um, domestic violence and incarceration and all kinds of things. The arts have no downside. So the more that I can help people understand that and really understand through concrete examples, both locally and beyond of what that means, the easier it is for me to help people see the value. So what do you tell people when they ask why local government or businesses should care about the arts and invest? Um, the short answer is, do you want to keep losing our graduates to Minneapolis, Des Moines, Sioux Falls, Chicago, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, Omaha, all the other Midwestern cities, do you want to keep losing our graduates to them? Because we're doing an excellent job of losing our graduates right now. Uh, this community lost my graduate. My son graduated from Fargo South, didn't consider going to college here, would have moved back here had the right job presented itself. But it's um, we couldn't compete with the opportunities that he got to go to Los Angeles and work for Boeing. So that's where he went. Um but for the, the average kid who's going to go into, let's say, marketing, PR, engineering, um, the, all the kinds of uh, very traditional jobs, we're losing out to communities that have said, we're going to make an investment in the arts and culture in this community because what we know to be true, particularly of millennials and Gen Zers, is that they want experiences so my generation went where the jobs were. Today's young generations are saying, I'm going to go where the city is interesting, and then I'll make a career there. And some of it is because they have opportunities to imagine entrepreneurship in such different ways than we did 30 years ago when I was at that um, time in my life, 25 years ago, whatever. But um, 
a, a big piece of it is simply, do you want to be able to fill your jobs? Do you want to be able to keep your jobs filled? Do you want to be able to grow your economic base as a city, as an entity, as a county? Do you want to attract more business to choose our community versus another community? If your answer is yes to any of those, then you absolutely have to invest in arts and culture. There is no other way around it, particularly because we don't have oceans or mountains. We have garbage weather a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> it's great that we have an airport, but it's kind of expensive to fly out of here. And it's not always super easy to fly in and out of Fargo. Uh, we are extremely remote geographically. We have a lot of things working against us before we even begin to talk about the human created aspects of this community. If we don't invest in those, there is no reason to live here. And art and culture is one of them. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. And the other, uh, I think important qualities, for instance, sports. Sports are a big draw for a lot of people. They're well invested in in this community. Um, hunting, fishing, wildlife, that's well invested. Our parks are well invested. Um, our, um, I don't know, I can't think of other ones, but, but the kinds of things that make people move someplace, lots of them are already well understood, well supported. The arts and culture are the next great value where when you put money in, that money comes back to you multifold. It is not a charitable gift to support the arts. It's good business to support the arts. What What is it about the arts and artists? Why are they not valued? I've, I've always wondered this. Um, so I was a photographer for 10 years. And, you know, people ask you for the kinds of discounts and things that they would never ask for if they were at Target buying toothpaste. Like, why is it that graphic designers or painters or anyone who is an artist is always being asked to give a discount on their work or do it for the exposure? Yeah, that makes me insane. Who the hell has ever been able to eat exposure? Um so, you know, I I really grapple with this question, and I'm sorry to say I don't have a clear answer. I have a number of um, theories. <clears throat> One of them is that you will often hear artists say, well, if nobody supports it, I'm going to do it anyway. That you don't hear a dentist say, if nobody comes to my practice, I'm just going to practice dentistry anyway. Um, so that's some of it is that there's this kind of understanding that artists are so driven to create that they will sacrifice themselves for the creation, which is true in many instances. But it's only true in cultures that don't believe in supporting the arts, because in socialist cultures, for instance, where the government sets aside a significant portion of money to support the arts, those artists all feel as strongly about making art as American artists do. It's just that they also are seen as uh, laborers and workers inside the cultural norm, and so they're supported appropriately. 
So that's that's one piece of it. Um, another piece of it is uh, I think capitalism has really done a number on the arts. And believe me, I'm no economist. I'm not going to lay out now all the theories of uh, how commerce works. But this notion of, well, who can make it bigger, better, faster, cheaper has really undercut the understanding of, yes, this was a $30 mug, but this mug was made by a human being. I know the human being. I got to participate in the process. I got to pick it myself. I know exactly where it was produced. I know exactly that this one looks comparable to the other ones in the series, but it's not a carbon copy. Um, there, You can't get something from a big box store and be sure that it is the one of its kind the way you can with an artist. Even photography, which can be produced and reproduced in multiple ways, lends itself to being unique in each piece. So um, capitalism has hurt our ability to be valued as producers. Um, I think that the Renaissance started this weird notion of um, these single, solitary, angst-ridden, depressed, addict geniuses who could not fit inside society and instead must be held apart, both uh, held apart in awe and in disgust, for lack of a better word, because they are so un they are so square trying to trying to live in this circular space um, that it made it easy to just discount all artists because that myth became so foundational to what we think of artists as being that when you hear about a 27 year old, you know, the myth of the, or the club of 27 year old musicians who've died, uh, you hear that and you sort of think, well, yeah, of course, it's because they were so artistic. We're very comfortable discounting people whose lives were cut short by saying, well, they were so artistic. Prince was so artistic. I mean, he was way older than 27, but he was young. Heath Ledger, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, um, the guy from The Doors, uh, whatever his name is. All those people were just too artistic to live in the world. They burned too bright. Well, maybe, or maybe they just were troubled people who happened to be artists, just like there are troubled doctors and troubled priests and troubled um, phys um, whatever. There are troubled people in every sector. When a young doctor dies, we don't say, oh, they just burned too bright. No, we say, boy, that's a shame. They had a whole career ahead of them. Right. And we don't do that with artists. So speaking of experiences with our theaters and museums and galleries and closed and our performances canceled, the arts are taking a huge hit during COVID-19. but art has been so crucial to bringing comfort and joy and hope and connection into our lives during our quarantine. How do we support artists and make sure that art survives this? 
Um, well, okay. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. One, one thing that I am desperately hoping comes out of COVID is that two um, sectors of our workforce are lifted up in ways that they haven't been for generations. And that is artists and teachers. Uh, if you have been homeschooling your children, you friggin' better never again ever utter the phrase, well, teachers only work nine months a year. You better never think that to yourself because you know how hard that job is and you have much more authority over your children than a teacher does. So I hope teachers and artists are lifted up and seen and valued for the incredibly difficult and invaluable role that they play in the overall health and wellness of our community and our culture. Um, the second thing is, boy, if you've got an organization that you have enjoyed in the past, write them a check. Just do it. And it doesn't need to be a huge check, but if they have ever mattered to you, if you have ever thought to yourself, boy, I should support them, now is the time to do it. Um, we did in Fargo, Moorhead, West Fargo, a great job of lifting up restaurants and independent shops and breweries. And they all came up with really great ways to uh, kind of create an alternative during this time. And I think the community has just been exceptional about, um, about supporting them. The same absolutely needs to be true of the arts. Are you getting to go to a live production of anything? No, you're not. Are you missing it? The answer is probably yes. And if you are, then think about the organizations that have mattered to you at any point and send them what you can. Um, my husband and I amazingly got the um, rebate checks. That's, I don't think that's what they're called, but you know what I mean. And we decided because we were in a fortunate position of not needing that money to pay rent or buy groceries, we decided that we would take a pretty good percentage of it and put it back into our community. And so some of that went to arts groups and some of it went to um, some other things that we wanted to support. But if you can do what you can sooner than later, if, if COVID were to end today, the arts sector, I believe, with um, a little bit of time would be back up and running pretty pretty seamlessly in the next four to eight weeks. If COVID spills into the end of 2020, into 2021 and beyond, we're gonna lose a lot of organizations because it's just not feasible to coast for a year. I, you know, I just heard the other day that the Guthrie has shut their doors until March of 2021. I don't know. I mean, I, the Guthrie is an enormous entity. They are one of the most powerful arts organizations in the nation, but I can't imagine even how they're going to sustain this. It's just unbelievable. Do you have any advice for artists who are wondering how to get through this uncertainty? Well, first of all, I want to thank all the artists and arts leaders who have found creative ways to provide content, whether in person, like Ashley Coons's 
butterfly wings, which she put up outside and um, uh, Kim Jory's gigantic chalk drawings that she's been doing. And I shouldn't have started naming names because I can't <laughs> list them all. Um, but, you know, artists have shown up and done incredible work in person and also online. Arts organizations have found ways to create programming and um, classes and workshops and content that you can download for your toddler. And it's just, it's been unbelievable. Um, I always say that the reason artists should be at the table is because they know how to problem solve. Holy buckets, COVID is a huge problem and the art sector is solving the hell out of it in such beautiful ways, doing what they do best. So um, know how grateful the arts partnership is for the work that you are doing if you're an artist or an arts leader listening. Um, and also know that you're saving people's lives. You're not nurses and doctors, you're not frontline saviors. Um, but you are what is lessening anxiety. You are what is bringing calm and peace and joy to people's lives. I can't imagine what, what the overall emotional scope of what the arts have done in this time really looks like. I desperately wish we could measure it because I just think it, we, I, I know that whatever I'm imagining it has been is a drop in the real bucket of the value the arts have brought. So hold on where you can, artists. Um, if you have to take a break for a while, take a break knowing that you will absolutely make your way back to the arts. You are at your being a maker. It will come back to you even if you have to stop it for a while now, there's no shame in taking a break out of necessity or out of desire. Don't worry, it's you will get back to it. And we at the Arts Partnership will be here to support you in any way that we can. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Dana. Thanks for having me. I really loved it. Well, thank you for sharing your stories and for being a champion for arts and artists in our community. Well, you know how I feel about you, Laura and Lady Boss and Danielle. I just, um, you know, I, I've said it publicly many times, but uh, you changed the way I think about my own life. You changed, you helped me develop my own story, which is unbelievable. Um, so thank you for being a champion of women. Wow. I can't think of a finer, finer thing to do than the work that you and I get to do. So I'm really honored to be on your show and to be an early guest with you because I just, I just think your work's incredible and it's work like this that's changing this community and will make things better for everybody. Well, that is a very high compliment. Thank you. So for the lady bosses listening, tell us where they can best find you if they want to connect or learn more about what you do or support artists. So uh, you can go to theartspartnership.net. Um, and then we, my young staff of, of great millennials have done an incredible job rebooting our website. So it should be even clearer than ever before. There's obviously there's a donate page. Uh, you're welcome to donate to the Arts Partnership if what you care about is sort of just 
the overall health and wellness of the art sector. But really, really, really what I want to impress upon people is if there is a place that you have gone once or routinely in your life before we were all shut down that has brought you any kind of emotional fulfillment, go and support them. They all have donate pages. If you can't find how to get to them, send me an email, D-A-Y-N-A at theartspartnership.net, and I will absolutely connect you to whoever and whomever you need to get connected to so you can support them. Um, Yeah, I just, everybody needs the support that can come from everybody and every single dollar matters. So let me know how I can help connect you to anybody you can't find on your own. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Lady Boss Podcast. Are you a lady boss? Find all of our events and ways to get connected at ladybossmidwest.com.